welcome to episode 56 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And in today's episode, we'll be talking review versus recommendation. And um, two novels, uh, one called The Lark by Inez Bitt and one called High Wages by Dorothy Whipple. It's our second Dorothy Whipple episode on the trot, no less. Wow. I know. Um, but before that, Rachel, how are you? What are you reading? Um, are you enjoying the sunshine, which will doubtless have be a distant memory by the time this goes live. Yes, no, I have been enjoying the sunshine. It's been such a lovely surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, I, know, I was I was walking around Kew Gardens yesterday and with my friend, and we just kept saying, "It's like August. Can't believe it. Feels like yeah. we should be on summer holidays." Um, but you know, it'll be gone by tomorrow, no doubt. But it's, it's been lovely while it's lasted. And it's also great to see the, the British public, the second there's any <laughs> shorts on, the entire freezer department of every supermarket. <laughs> it's like there's some sort of Armageddon happened. All the ice cream's gone. I am wearing shorts right now. I will, I will confess. I'm wearing a dress. I've got my feet up. You know, <laughs> very relaxing. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a nice way to bring people together, I think. Yeah, and, and kudos to all those news agents whose freezers are full of ice creams that say not to be sold separately on them. I always enjoy yeah. the, the brazenness <laughs> of that. <laughs> um, and I indeed bought one of those ice creams yesterday and ate it next to the river, and it was lovely. Oh, yeah. lovely. As well as going to a donkey sanctuary and seeing some donkeys, because I love donkeys. Where is there a donkey sanctuary? In a village called Brightwell Come Sotwell, <laughs> <laughs> which is a brilliant name. But a um, friend of the podcast, Lorna, came to visit and wanted to go there because we went there about eight years ago. We had a lovely day doing that. And then we had some dinner in the garden and then we watched um, Before Sun... I want to say right. No, Before Sunset, the second No, I've, I've never seen either of those. Oh, they're wonderful. I, yeah, some of my favourite films. I um, should. I will watch them at some point. There's a trilogy, in fact. Before Midnight is a third. So. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, but the middle one is my favourite one, and Lorna hadn't seen any of them, so we went straight for the middle one, because it's set in Paris, where she used to live. So, yes. Oh. Um, yes, and what are you reading? Um, at the moment, I'm reading The Mermaid and Mr. Hancock. By oh, yes, you messaged me. Yeah. Imogen something-something. Um, and it's very good, actually. It was a bit of a... I wasn't sure at the beginning, but I'm about a third of the way through now, and I'm really enjoying it. It's set in Georgian London, and it's about a man called Mr. Hancock, who um, unexpe- <laughs> yeah, unexpectedly <laughs> finds himself in possession of a mermaid. Um, and mm. it's it's not what you think. It's a, it's like a dead gremlin thing. Oh. And he, he puts... It's not. I, I imagined him, you know, actually a bit like Splash, you know, having a mermaid in his car. <laughs> Um, that's not it at all. And you raced towards that novel, obviously. <laughs> I thought, why not? Um, but it's, yeah, no, it's interesting. I haven't really read very much that's set in Georgian London, of obviously being a, a Victorianist. So uh, the 18th century is not really something I know a lot about, so I'm quite enjoying it from that perspective. Mm, yeah. And what about you? Um, I am reading a book called The Aching Heart. The Aching is spelt A-K-E-I-N-G, and that has yet to be explained. <laughs> but, um, it's it's letters between Sylvia Townsend Warner, Valentine Ackland, and Elizabeth Wade White. Um, yes, so I don't know how much you know of these people, and I assume some of our listeners don't, so I'll give a quick praise. <laughs> so Sylvia Townsend Warner and Valentine Ackland were uh, partners. They lived together for many decades. Um, uh, but And Elizabeth Wade White came and had an affair with Valentine Ackland. Indeed, Valentine moved Elizabeth into 
their house and Sylvia had to move out for a while. And it's all, yeah. it was all extremely sad. And I've only really read about it from the perspective of that part of their lives, um, which was written about in, you know, Sylvia Townsend Warner's biography by Claire Harmon and all sorts. Um, what I had not appreciated until reading this is that they'd all been quite good friends before that. And there's all these letters where Sylvia's begging, Val- uh, begging Elizabeth to come and stay with them and that sort of thing. Think, oh, but you wish she hadn't. Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, Sylvia Townsend Warner is a brilliant letter writer. I always love reading her letters. And this is, um, yeah, it's a really interesting collection. It's, pu- it's published by Handheld Press, who are a new publisher who do some new fiction and some reprint fiction. And this is an, in their research series. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting, uh, new publishing house. Um, very, very small, but it's select and all that sort of thing. So yeah, I'm enjoying reading it, but I am intrigued as to why it's called The Aching Heart, <laughs> because it's, I mean, telling people I'm reading a book called The Aching Heart <laughs> sounds like I'm going Milton Boone, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it does a little bit, yeah. Yeah. It's also enormous, so it's not very easy to take to work or anything. So <laughs> I was able to read lots of it in the park yesterday when I could drive near the park. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't think I'd be able to carry it that far. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm enjoying it. Good. Glad to hear it. And before we go on to the first topic, Rachel, something came up on Twitter the other day in discussion with, so I forget who, sorry, someone, um, about the word quite. And as someone who's lived in America for a year, um, yes. are, are you familiar with the American English versus British English use of the word quite? Uh, well, not off the top of my head, no. Because it came up that this could be confusing people reading book reviews all over the, all over the place. Because if you or I, being British people, were to say that the book was quite good, we mean it was all right. It was okay. Yeah. Could be better. But in American English, quite just means very or completely. So if they say the book was quite good, they mean it was really good and you should go and buy it. Oh, I didn't know that. And so you know how we use quite in like it was quite perfect or it was, or you're quite wrong. So that yeah. that sense they just use all the time. Crazy, oh. huh? So we have to be careful if we're saying a book is quite good, whether we know <laughs> whether we're speaking yes. British English or American English, because people could otherwise race, rush out to buy a book that they turn, turns out just to be okay. Well, I think it's pretty safe to say that unless a British person says something's amazing, they're pretty, you know, nonplussed about it. <laughs> um, we don't get excited true. in this country, do we? It's true, but we also understate. So if we, even if we think something's amazing, we might just say it's okay. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. True. <laughs> yes, well... In, we'll have to make sure uh, later in this episode whether we with these books whether or not we think you should rush out and buy them spoilers I think you should rush out and buy one of them <laughs> ah, okay yeah um, but on to the first topic which was um, another recommendation or suggestion rather by my friend Paul thank you Paul again you are keeping us afloat with ideas um, <laughs> and it's yeah recommendations versus reviews which I think we might be able to look at in various different ways but my understanding of it on sort of first sight as it were is reviews in newspapers or traditional book review print versus recommendations from friends in our day-to-day lives um and obviously there is there are blog reviews that we'll come on to but um do you have many bookish friends who are likely to recommend books to you and, and sort of part two of that question do you pay much heedance to those recommendations if you get them <laughs> Um, what, in terms of, like, actual real-life friends? Real-life friends, like colleagues or, you know, people we went to uni with or, you know, ignore right, internet okay. friends for a moment. <laughs> okay. Um, 
I mean, I obviously I work in a school, so there are quite a lot of, of readers at school. Um, and we, yeah, I think there's a there's a couple of people at work who I would trust their recommendations. Um, the literature, like the French literature and English literature teachers, we recommend books to each other mm. quite a lot. Um, but I'm not, you know, like I know their tastes, and sometimes I know that they're not they're not quite on the same wavelength as me when it comes to books. So I don't take everything that they say with, um, like I don't rush straight out and buy mm-hmm. whatever they suggest. But I'd be more likely to look it up on Amazon or whatever, and then have a look at the the blurb and see, oh, okay, well, or I might ask to borrow it, and then I don't actually have to spend the money if I don't like it. Um, but uh, there's and my friend. Emma, who I went to university with, she will often recommend me books or buy me books. She'll send me a book for my birthday or something like that. She lives in mm. Scotland and she knows my taste quite well. And sometimes she'll buy me things where initially I'll be like, oh, really? And then <laughs> um, I'll start reading it and think, actually, no, she's right. I do really like this. And I also have a really good friend um, that I met in New York called Ellen, um, who I we just email these days but because um, obviously we're in a different country. But um, she always recommends marvelous everything she recommends or sends me is always brilliant and mm. even if like she just somehow just knows my taste perfectly and she's introduced me to like she introduced me to marilyn robinson oh. um yeah so i'll be forever thankful to her for that um she just she's so well read because she used to manage um a barnes and noble in like the biggest barnes and noble in new york so she's and she's quite a lot older than me like she's old enough to be my mum. so she's read loads and she's just really good at introducing me to people like she's like oh well, I know you like this person so I think you'll definitely like this and like someone I've never heard of and those are the kind of recommendations I really love mm. yeah absolutely um it sounds like you've got more in your in your life than I do in mine <laughs> in terms ah. of in that, in that I've I've got a few friends um who will lend or recommend me things that are up my street so um my friend Kirsty who's Paul's girlfriend um we have very similar tastes but she and she often Lend me books that I take forever to read. Sorry, Kirsty, but um, they do, they're not that often complete unknowns to me. It's more just authors I've been intending to read or other, mm. bo- other books by authors I already like. Um, and then there's quite a few friends who, who who do like reading, and I haven't really got a full understanding of their taste. And whenever they start recommending something, I'm, I'm living in like I'm sort of nervously hoping they won't offer to lend it to me because I don't really want to read whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> not because it sounds like it. I wouldn't maybe enjoy it, but that it, it's not one that completely grabs me. And thus, I think um, if you lend it to me, I'm going to have to read it. And I, that means I can't read all these other books I want to read. And yeah, so I sort of quietly try not to look too enthusiastic, which, you know, I may have missed out on some great things because of that. Um, well, you know, my strategy is always, yeah, you know what, I'll look that up, I'll have to try it. And then, you know, never get into Never the... see them again. <laughs> yeah, just... <laughs> disappear <laughs> don't don't enter into the oh I'll, I'll have to borrow that from you it's kind of like when you say we'll have to have lunch and, <laughs> it. and like when you say you want to come on holiday with me and my friends and don't come <laughs> i did mean it that you don't care about my school holiday <laughs> um yes yeah, yeah, I, I tried i tried my best we will next year i'm sure um I think the recommendations that I do appreciate from friends are when they see me reading something and say, oh, that reminds me of such and such, because it gives them, it's given them a bit more to go on. Mm. Um, I was reading 
uh, an Oliver Sacks, of course, somewhere. And then my friend Sanjay said, oh, have you thought about, have you, do you know Touching the Rock? Um, which initially I thought was, might be a strange biography of Dwayne Johnson. But, uh, <laughs> turns out it's actually someone's account of, um, blindness and becoming blind themselves. Oh. Um, which I have yet to actually get, but it is in my <laughs> Amazon wish list. So, you know, one day. Um, but yes, I think it's those ones where I, either I trust them enough, uh, my friend Phoebe's another one. She introduced me to Helen Thomas, we did, who we did on the podcast a while ago. Um, yes. So, yeah, people who know enough of my taste that I feel secure uh, that they're likely to recommend something that I know. But it does mean that I tend to steer away from the ones who might expand my taste more, which isn't great. I should I should be willing to expand my taste more. But whenever someone, particularly if it's a long book, <laughs> wants to lend something to me or recommend something to me, I think, yeah, I'll write that down <laughs> one day. Well, the thing is, you, I think you have to really trust somebody and also have have history with them in terms of having tried something they've recommended before because people are always recommending me books because, you know, they know that I love reading and mm-hmm. I'm an English teacher. So people are like, oh, you read books, you'd love this. And it's like, well, I don't, I don't read all the books. So there's got to be something, you know, that's, that's I've got in common. So, I mean... I think some people just seem to think that if you read books that you'll just love the latest book that they've read mm-hmm. because they, they really enjoyed it so they want to sort of press it on everybody and I'm certainly not like that like I'll read a book and think it's amazing but I'll also bear in mind I think it's amazing because I really like the quality of the writing or because I really love um books about 1930s spinster ladies yeah, of course. You know, <laughs> and therefore not everybody's going to share my taste Whereas I think there are a lot of people that I know, certainly, who are sort of blanket reviewers, as in saying, oh, I've just read this and it's amazing, everybody should read it. And it's, you know, the latest Dan Brown or something. Yeah, yeah. And I've had a lot of people recommend books that I've either started and given up on or just have zero interest in reading. Like, so many people have recommended Hilary Mantel to me, and I know that you, like, a lot of people do like her, but... I'm not going to read them. I tried. I got a few pages in and I stopped. <laughs> so, but it, oh, okay, why didn't you like it? Uh, historical fiction, present tense, long. <laughs> Basically, all all red flags for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I these were all my red flags when I started because I hate everything. Everything these days is in the present tense. It drives yeah. me insane. But actually, once you get past the first couple of chapters, it is amazing. And I do think if you push through, you'd really like it. <laughs> we'll never know. We'll never know. <laughs> and also a long book is not a red flag to you Rachel you love a long book <laughs> yeah that's no, true I do <laughs> <laughs> they don't have time I'm very old <laughs> <laughs> we're the same age <laughs> <laughs> those six months Rachel <laughs> whatever it is <laughs> oh dear um, I think yes how about reviews how about newspaper reviews or I don't know Times History Supplement or whatever do you read any of those yeah, I do. I, I like to read the review pages in The Guardian. I don't, I used to read The Times, but now it's, um, you have to pay to look at it, so I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will, I have the, the London Review of Books that I have a subscription to that, mm. but by the time stuff gets reviewed in there, it's been out for months, so. <laughs> um, but it's, I do read them out of interest, but I'm always thinking that there's some kind of agenda behind newspaper reviews, so I don't, I treat them with a pinch, pinch of salt. What sort of agenda? Well, you know, there's. I feel like they either they must know each other or something like that. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. and also sometimes, I I feel like they're pushing a particular agenda with it. Hmm. 
Yeah, I um, don't really read any, to be honest. I, the, I read The Week, which has which reviews one non-fiction and one fiction each week, so I, I tend to oh. read those reviews. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't remember that I've actually ever gone out and read any of the books I've read about there, but uh, I've quite often enjoyed um, seeing what they think is the notable novel of the week, <laughs> because it's usually an author I've never heard of. Um, <laughs> and occasionally, I, I read The Guardian online as well, um, uh, and do look at their review pages, but I tend to find that reviews in newspapers are more often sort of, I guess, essays, which mm. is, is fine, is a strength, but it's not going to tell me whether or not I want to read the book. Um, and I know this is a debate that comes up every, you know, every few years is, you know, the whole blogger versus reviewer or versus critic mm. or whatever thing. And that's, we might touch on that, but, but, um, I tend to find that I can get through a review, which, which particularly of nonfiction, which doesn't ever tell me whether or not the book's well written. It'll just it'll be about the topic or about the author's understanding of the topic. Or, yeah. Um, and yeah, I've got to the end, it'll just say, and this book is a comprehensive overview of it or something. It's like, well, but is it good? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they're not very um, emotional. I th- well, obviously, newspaper reviews aren't emotional. And that's what I really enjoy about blog reviews is that people tell you how they responded to them and how it made them feel and what it reminded mm-hmm. them of and why it was special or not special. And also, their blogs, I think, tend to be honest and and quite descriptive as to why they didn't like something if, if it doesn't work for them. Whereas newspaper reviews are either excoriating and and are there to they've obviously published the review because it's it's the bad the book is so bad they've managed to make a funny <laughs> review about yeah, it yeah. or something scathing or critical or that it's just like as you say an essay about um this author. and often i find it degenerates away from the book and starts talking about the author in general or the mm-hmm. author's back catalogue or the historical period that it's in, or starts comparing the book with other books in the. And I'm like, I just want to find out whether I should, I should read yeah. this. Book <laughs> just tell me if it's good. Yes, basically, and and I think yes, a, a blog review is essentially between these two, isn't it? It's, it's sort of like a friend, but I mean, potentially maybe a real friend, potentially someone you've yes. never read their blog before, but but does feel like a, a more friendly way of writing uh, a review and it, and some people shy away from the word review but i think it's you know it's a broad church we can call blog post reviews as well um and I, what i yeah what i do like about blog reviews which you i think you touched on there is that it's very personal to them and so it might say i like the reviews that say i didn't really like this but it might be because i had a headache and i you know yeah. i wasn't in the right mood for it <laughs> which is you know it, it makes you think oh i could read that but i have to make sure i'm doing it when I'm in the right mood to read that sort of book, not on a, you know, crowded tube or something. <laughs> um, and that's, that sort of reader to reader comment really helps. Um, and I think if it is just s- some highfalutin newspaper, you know, thoughts on the modern novel or something, it's like, well, that doesn't tell me whether or not <laughs> I'm going to enjoy reading it on the beach. <laughs> no. And I think as well, there's an element of trust involved as well. So when you, have a, a kind of relationship with a book blogger, even if it's just by knowing them online and you read their book regularly and you know the kind of books they like and the books they don't like and you have a sense for their taste, you can trust their what they write about books more often. Whereas newspaper reviewers, you don't build a relationship with them in that way. You don't, they're not consistent in terms of what they'll review and what they'll like. So why should you trust what they say anyway? Why, why should you care? And that's what I don't understand about this whole debate about newspaper reviewers being superior to 
to book bloggers and you know book bloggers who who they think they are daring to give an opinion mm-hmm. about the what do they know about literature and it's like well actually what book bloggers know about is whether they've enjoyed a book or not and yeah. that's yeah. that's what people want to know and just because they don't have you know a job at a newspaper doesn't make them prevent them from having an informed opinion about a book that's relevant to people yeah and i think they are different arts i think i don't think anyone's suggesting they should be a published you know, collected blog reviews of so-and-so and we're in the way that you might do collected criti- criticisms of someone because they're not trying to create art in itself in the way that a piece of criticism might be, uh, for the for the most part, certainly I'm not. Um, but what they are doing is, yeah, providing that service of whether or not you'll enjoy a book. <laughs> um, yeah. But the main reason I prefer blog reviews or read more blog reviews is because they'll write about books published any time in the last, you know, 400 years <laughs> as opposed to the last four weeks. So... You know, a few you know reprints might be reviewed yeah. in newspapers, but I mean, I read so few new books. Whereas, um, if yeah, bloggers who mostly write about books published in the twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, those are obviously going to be the ones where I'm like, oh yes, that does sound good. And also, I'll be able to go and buy a copy for a few pounds online rather than <laughs> thinking, oh, do I want to shell out twenty five pounds for a new copy of this <laughs> non fiction yeah. book or whatever? No, I didn't think of that actually. You do get a lot more variety on blogs. And you get the opportunity to hear about books that someone's picked up in a second-hand bookshop as opposed to something that's recently come out. And I do, I and mean, I know I always say things like this, I'm such a conspiracy theorist, but <laughs> I, I do wonder how, you know, newspapers choose which books to review. And there's got to be some kind of backhand going on somewhere, hasn't there? Um well, what you don't know, Rachel, is that my blog has been a low-level agenda for the past 11 years. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just trying to subsume the world in 1920 spinsters. <laughs> my plan is slowly coming together. <laughs> but actually, Claire Tomlin did write quite interestingly about how books are selected um, for for review in her autobiography, uh, A Life of One's Own. Uh, because oh. she ran the uh, Times book section, so maybe it wasn't. I, I should, should remember that salient detail. But she was, yeah, she ran some book section, <laughs> <laughs> and there are, yeah, there's bits about how how they organise the books that come in, and yes, there's not, not no great conspiracies on earth there. I'm afraid <laughs> she's obviously keeping in the Illuminati. So, <laughs> um, but but yeah, it's it's an interesting eye opener because it must be. Um, even if there's no agenda, just you know, exhausting getting that many books in and having to work out to get a good mix between different types of books over the year and all that sort of thing. Well, yes, but I think also there's, there's got to be a particular, you know, bias towards particular publishers and things like that because they're not going to publish reviews of books that nobody's interested in, are they? Or that they perceive yeah. nobody's going to be interested in. That's the thing. You're relying on somebody deciding what they think the readership are going to enjoy. And so there is a kind of gatekeeping going on there, whereas bloggers will just blog about whatever they're reading. There's no sense of, I mean, obviously we all select books based on our taste. I'm not saying mm-hmm. that, but in terms of the breadth of books and also on with blogs, lots of people who read blogs tend to read, you know, more than one. So you're reading five or six or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you're getting this broad variety of opinions all the time. And also on blogs, you've got the comment section. So then you've got other people weighing in and then a conversation starts about the book, which you, I mean, some newspaper websites do allow you to comment under newspaper articles, but certainly book reviews and things like that, they don't tend to get that much traffic, I find. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, 
And that's another way that separates blogs, even just from friends mentioning it, because unless you're in a book group or something, then you haven't really got anyone else to sound off at that point. You just have no. to go away and read it straight away. Um, also, or sometimes you can just go and Google it and find some blogs and it works together nicely. But, um, but if, yeah, if someone is just saying, I really liked the new whoever, it's like, well, I don't know what to do with that information. I don't know anything about <laughs> this person or, or anything about your taste. Um, Having said that, I've, I'm forever recommending books to other people, so <laughs> I don't I don't practice what I preach. But um, but although having said that, whenever anyone asks me to to recommend a book, my mind always goes completely blank. So. I think I think I'm quite good at recommending books. I like to recommend things to people, but I tailor it to what I I'm sure that they'll like. I, oh, yeah, I, I love doing it, but I'm always just like, I'll message you later once I've thought about it for a bit. Yeah, I'll send you some <laughs> options. I never foist books like Dorothy Whipple or things like that on, on people who I feel like it would be wasted on because I'd hate for someone to come back to me and say, oh, this was crap. And I'd be like, no. No, friendship over. <laughs> I don't understand. In fact, when I was just reading um, Helen Hant's uh, Apple of My Eye, which is... a um, uh, it's about writing a guidebook for New York, uh, but it also sort of functions as a guidebook. It's, it's a strange mix. But as I was reading that, I thought, my friend Lorna will love this, um, because she, she lived in New York for a couple of years. And um, I sent her excerpts from it <laughs> over WhatsApp and indeed lent it to her this morning. So um, it's nice when you're reading a book and think, oh, this would be perfect for so-and-so. And I've often found that with other bloggers as well, actually, when I'm reading something and think, you have to read this, you'll love it, and then message them about it. That's nice. Yeah. Um, so I think we're both, it seems like we both agreed that the middle ground of blog reviews is our, is our favourite, but if we have to choose between more traditional sort of criticism reviewing or friends recommending, what would you go for? i go for friends recommending, because I'd take a, a personal opinion over a dry, critical perspective any day. Yes, and I think I'm on the same page. Oh, there we are. There we go. <laughs> Great. Um, in the second half of the episode, we are Hurrah! Doing the Lark by Ian Esbitt, and also High Wages by Dorothy Whipple, um, yeah. which will be fun. Um, we were discussing just before we started how neither of us have read High Wages <laughs> particularly recently. So who gets to do the the, the quick overview of that book? <laughs> Um, I will do a very brief. I'll I'll take one for the team. I'll do brave. a brief. Seeing as that, I'm just looking at the date on my on my review, 2010. Also, when I read it, there you go. Oh goodness, eight years ago. Where does the time go? Oh, exactly. Well, which month did you read it? And maybe that's how we can decide. <laughs> I read it. In, I read it in April, so mine's the further away. So you. Have to... <laughs> <laughs> um, Am I starting it. then? No. Oh, you I get, oh should, should I do the luck first? Sure. Yeah, you do the luck first. So um, it was the last novel that Ian Espit published in 1922, I think. Um, it's about a girl called Jane and her friend, who has a name as well, um, <laughs> Lucilla, her cousin, yeah. um, who have just left school and, they, and they're and they expecting to be uh, to inherit all this wonderful wealth. And turns out that their uh, benefactor, or the person, their guard, who's the person who was looking after their money, has squandered most of it um, in, in poor investments and has left them only £500, which is uh, about £50,000, I think, in modern-day money, or possibly more. So quite a lot, but in their eyes, not very much. Also has left them a house. So, so um, they move into this house and try and work out how they're going to uh, get a continuing income. They decide they might do this by selling flowers. 
they sell all the flowers in their garden in about a day, and then they see that there's a nice mansion around the corner which they could sell the flowers there instead. By a series of coincidences, they are allowed um, to sell the flowers there and eventually move into it. They're in a little tea room, they take paying guests. Um, and the son of the owner, um, Mr. Rochester, is a potential romantic interest um, for, for, for Jane. Um, and essentially, it's a very charming book all about their, their exploits in trying to have a job um, and also you know, entering into the world and being grown-ups for the first time and meeting various characters along the way and having various amusing incidents. Yeah. yeah. Um, so High Wages is is also about Jane and it's quite different to uh, Dorothy Whipple's other books in that it's about a young woman who, apart from young Anne actually, it's, it's they've both got a young female hero, a heroine and she wants to... Um, She's very ambitious and she, at the start of the novel, she escapes a kind of really rubbish home life. She's got a nasty stepmother to become a shop girl in the local department store. It's 1912, so it's pre-World War One, And she's really successful at it. She's really good at um, choosing fabrics and helping people find exactly the right cut of a dress for themselves and things. Um, and so she works her way up in the shop. And then after the war, she decides she wants her own shop. And she sees the way that things are changing and her boss doesn't. And she keeps trying to push him to make changes, saying things like, you know, we need to buy ready-made clothes. That's what people want now. People don't want to have to keep buying fabric and making their clothes. And he's all stuck in the past. And she can see this shining new way of doing things. And so she strikes out on her own. Um, and it's all about her building a life for herself and a business for herself. And she's got a romantic interest, but her prime motivation is always her career and her passion for what she does. And I think it's actually quite rare for a book at any time, certainly for the time when Dorothy Ripple was writing, to write about a woman putting herself and her career before any other any other considerations, actually. And I think that's, for me, is the most the thing I took away from the book and enjoyed the most was the fact that the ending you expect isn't there because she chooses herself over a man, which I loved. Yeah, great. Mm. Um, so um, I, as you say, we both read that in 2010. Um, mm. I read The Luck maybe three years ago, which uh, Scott, the far Middlebrow blog, had written about how great it was. At that point, it was out of print and very hard to find, but I managed to find a copy in a charity shop in Yeovil. In fact, it must be less than that because I read it whilst we after we did the Inez bit episode of the podcast. Um, but it was then republished by uh, Dean Street Press in their Ferg Middlebrow series and has now been republished by Penguin um, in a little series where uh, women writers recommend other books by women that they think should be back in print and this was brought back by Penelope Lively. Yeah. Um, and whichever year I read it, it was my favourite book that year. I, I love it so much. <laughs> and it's just, it's so charming. I use that word in the description, but it is. It's just um, charming without being cloying. I, and I've, I've since gone on to read a couple other of her books um, as e-books on my, on my phone, because that's the only way they're available, called um, The Incredible Honeymoon and something else. Um, and they're much closer to her children's books in terms of style, even though they are technically... They're categorised as her novels. They're much, they're they're again about um, women who've just left school, and they but they feel much closer to the schoolroom. Whereas this, they do feel like real adults. It doesn't feel like schoolgirls pretending. Um, and yeah, it's just a really lovely 
I love I love books about people, you know, getting sort of quaint jobs. <laughs> in, <laughs> in in a way, both of them are doing that. I know not quaint's the wrong word, but you know, women trying to get work at that time is always interesting to read about. Um, and yeah, I think it's just um, a really enjoyable and lovely rural setting and nice people, and somehow it all comes together with these ingredients that could have been a bit saccharine, but somehow it isn't. Um, but yeah, and you've just read it for the first time, haven't you? I have, and I just—I mean, I knew I'd like it because you said that I would. And yeah. if, following on from our previous discussion, I know that I can trust you. So um, I was like, well, there we are. I'm sure I'll love it because he's bleating on about it, and I do love it as but anyway. And I just thought it was—yeah, you're right. It's utterly charming, and the two girls are so naive and silly, and the things that they worry about um, are hilarious. And just the way that they're like, well, everything will be fine. We shall sell flowers. <laughs> as if that, that's going to solve all their problems. And, you know, it is reliant on a lot of silly coincidences. But you you don't mind that part of the book because the characters are so charming. And you've got the two lovely, um, you've got the, the, they're so, I think Jane, is Jane the one who invites the, Mr. is it Mr. Dix, the gardener? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they meet, I love the way they meet Mr. Dix, that they're in London and, <laughs> They they meet this. I can't remember how exactly. Where, where do they meet him? In Madame Two Swords. In Madame Two Swords, and because they think he's a waxwork. Yes, they think he's a waxwork, and they bump into him, and then he's got sort of a little bit of um, ragged clothes on, and they feel sorry for him, and then he says that he's he's been in prison, and and they assume that he's um, mm. a, an ex-convict. But even so, they, they just say, well, you know, we need a gardener. Why don't you come on down to our house in the countryside? Not even thinking anything about it. Mm. And then they sort of have an argument about it. So, you know, well, he could be anybody and he could have murdered someone. And um, it turns out he was a, he was a prisoner of war. And mm. and the, I just I love that scene when he he cried. I know. And, it's again, really moving, isn't it? It's really moving. Yeah. He cried and, and they were like, why are you upset? And he said, well, the fact that I'm not. And they said, we're so sorry that we thought you were an ex-convict. Like, we didn't mean to say yeah. that. <laughs> and, and he said, no, I'm crying because even thinking that you you asked me to come anyway. And I just thought that's just the sweetest thing. Oh, yeah, that's one of my favorite scenes as well. Yeah. And I think what saves it from being just like Pollyanna-esque is that it's also really funny. Yeah. Um, and it has a really believable dynamic between the two of them that they, you know, between Lucilla and Jane and that they bicker quite a lot and they tease each other quite a lot and they, mm. you know, point out when each other are being ridiculous. And it's not just a sort of, they're not constantly nice to each other, <laughs> um, even if they really care and love each, for each, um, love each other. Um, which I don't I always enjoy realistic portrayals of, you know, sort of bickering friendly friendships because that's what most people have, but you don't yeah. see it. So it's hard to represent in literature, I think. Yeah, they do have a wonderful friendship and I love how they're very honest with each other and they, they disagree over things, but ultimately they always come, they always kind of get through their arguments and nothing lasts very long. Yeah. And <laughs> they are very funny and very trusting and they're good hearted. And they make mistakes, but they're the kind of mistakes you can imagine. Girl, I mean, they're only 17 and 2018 yeah. or something. And it's really, I, what I really like about it is they don't need rescuing. They can manage by themselves. They do have, their, all the male characters are obviously there to support them in what they're doing and, you know, eventually to fall in love with them, obviously. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but they're, they come up with all these ideas themselves. They, they don't, um, they don't need anybody to give them the ideas or to show them how to do things. Um, they 
they appreciate the help that they have, but at the same time, they can manage by themselves. And I, and I liked how Ines betrayed that. They're not totally useless. They're naive, yes, but they also do have some good sense. And yeah. I, I liked how they weren't phased by the fact that they had to make a living. And they just, I love to they received that letter basically saying, you have no money. And they were like, right, okay, then we'll have a cup of tea and then we'll think about it. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> um, which reminds me of one of my favourite lines in um, High Wages, where Jane's being introduced to the shop and someone says, oh, she has the first cup of tea of the day. And they talk about how great the first cup of tea of the day is. And Jane says, what should we do now? And the other woman says, we have another cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and yes, you should say that's where the, the title of the novel, The Lark, comes from, is the idea that she said, she says, we're not going to treat this as a tragedy. We're going to treat it as a lark in the sense of, yes. like, you know, a, a game, a fun thing, to, to you know, an opportunity. Um, it's quite and, ahead of its time in that, really, this whole positive thinking. Yes, the uh, keep calm and carry on and all that sort of thing. <laughs> They'll be doing adult colouring books in no time. <laughs> um, and um, yes, I, I agree with what you were saying about high wages in your um, recap of it, in that I, I love seeing this woman in this job. It reminded me of The Homemaker in lots of ways, by Dorothy Campbell Fisher, another Persephone, uh, about a woman going out to do work. Um, I think that, that was definitely my favourite part. What worked perhaps less well for me was some of the surrounding characters and their slightly stock uh, storylines, I guess. Um, some of them were, I thought were great. I thought Lily and her abusive husband were really interesting, mm. the maid Lily, um, or partner or whatever he is. Um, but, yes, Mrs. Briggs, the sort of humble, honest, poor, made good sort of thing. Um, do you remember her? I can't yes. Remember, I can't remember quite the relation is. In fact, um, if I may just quote my own review, um, I wrote... Uh, so her husband has become rich, and I wrote of the husband, his name, his, whose name I forgot, but which I presume is Alfred or Albert. This sort of man is always called one of the two. Yeah. So I can't remember if he is or not, but he's he's an Alfred or Albert, or Albert type, <laughs> the sort who you know was from the north and ran factories, but and they made lots of money, and has perhaps forgotten his root, but his his wife always remembers that they were, even when they were poor, they were good and all that sort of thing. Yes. Um, which, you know, is fun to read about, but not particularly searing in terms of insight into, into the character in the way that perhaps Dorothy Wibble thought it was. Sure. No, I think High Wages is, is less of a, a, de- a rich novel, perhaps, as her, as her other ones, because you don't have the really well fleshed out wider cast of characters that you have in her bigger books, mm-hmm. like Green Banks and um, They Were Sisters and uh, Someone at Distance. But um, I, I think the focus on Jane herself is, is probably the book's strength, and you really get mm-hmm. to know her and her inner life and her ambitions. And I also just loved the period details, like finding out how it, what, what shops used to be like, because mm-hmm. I think this was before Mr. Selfridge, so, you know, you didn't mm-hmm. see um, the kind of shops you don't often read about shops in books of this period and what, how people bought stuff. You don't know the day-to-dayness of it. And I just loved the reading about the experience of, of people walking into a shop. They don't just choose the fabric. They have to choose the buttons. They have to choose the trimming. They have to decide what colour the bias binding is going to be. You know, are you going to have it all black? Or are you going to have a bit of red on it? And like, what pattern are you going to use? And it was, I mean, I just can't imagine what a palaver it must have been. Yes, it's true. Just to choose a dress. And um, I loved how also Jane being interested in fashion 
isn't something frivolous like nowadays i think if you if people perceive those who are interested in fashion or wanting to go into the fashion or retail industry it's 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 a bit kind of people can be a bit snobby about it but james sees it as a really important career making women feel good about themselves and finding mm, things that yeah. makes them feel good is something that she feels really passionate about and she's also got a fantastic eye for design and color and she's uneducated she comes from a very poor background and yet she sees her talent she takes her talent and she does amazing things with it yes it's a bit like a pim to see the peep show in that regard isn't mm, it? absolutely um and i think yeah I, one of the things i really like about it is because it's written at the time it's set, we get all these details without it feeling like someone's just gone away and researched it all. I'm, I'm sure we've all had to do some research because I don't think she had a job like this herself, as far as I know. No, I don't think so. But it, but it feels very natural rather than yeah. someone just saying, I found all, all these things about how clothes shots used to be and people will, will do them in these scenes just so everyone knows that I've learned how, what they did, etc. Whereas because there wasn't any other way to do things yet, it just feels, yeah, natural, but the sort of details that most people don't put in a book because at the time because the books weren't about that so it's nice to have yeah a book that looks in detail at this part of their everyday life that is yeah an invaluable like historical record as well as an entertaining novel yeah absolutely and like i said before there are so few books written in general about women um and their inner lives separate from their romantic lives um so i mean i've rarely in fact i can't even think of other examples where the focus is on of a, a book about a woman is not about her meeting somebody and falling in love and that being her happy ending um and the fact that her happy ending is her having her own shop is mm-hmm. really quite revolutionary for the time as well and it does make you think about i mean dorothy Bipple herself married quite young to an older man and it does make you think about perhaps she's so nobody is yet to write dorothy Bipple's biography um, mm. when is that person coming along? But, oh, hey. um, the, <laughs> it should be you, Rachel. It should be me. Um, <laughs> the, the question is there is, you know, is she writing something of herself into Jane? I wonder. Mm. Did she regret, you know, giving herself away before she had the opportunity to achieve everything she wanted? I don't know. Dot, mm. dot, Um, and I think, yes, contrarily to the lark, it seems, the Lark seems a much less realistic way that these girls make yes. a living. I mean, they do, as you say, they do have initiative and they do not just wait for a man to rescue them. But also, this business would fold in a second. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem to suggest that a lot of their custom comes from people wanting to talk to the pretty young women. Yeah. Which, you know, questionable um, in some ways. Uh, and they, they, they do turn into... Um, taking paying guests later in the novel yeah it's a bit of, bit of a sudden late change in the book it does seem a bit yeah. maybe like you know it ran out of things to say about selling flowers and <laughs> um and there's a few uh, that, that's my in fact my main criticism of the book which is sort of not a criticism is that i wish it were longer which i don't often say <laughs> because the ending does feel a bit rushed but the, the paying yes. guests i won't say quite why they leave but the paying yeah. guests leave um she realizes I mean, it would come as no surprise to anyone, even if they weren't called Jane and Mr. Rochester, <laughs> that, <laughs> that they're likely to get together. It, it all feels a bit sudden, um, and I think it could have done with another 50, 100 pages. Yes, um, it felt a bit like it ran out of steam towards the end. Yeah. Um, and I, I love the Mr. Rochester character. Is it is it John, James, Jack? John. Jack. Or Jack and his mum calls him John, or vice versa. I don't know. 
Yes. Anyway, Vincent J. Um, mm-hmm. he, he was he was very sweet, and I enjoyed re- reading about him. Um, but perhaps he was a slightly flimsier character, um, and mm. maybe that's why she didn't feel she could develop their relationship too much. <laughs> they just sort of realised. <laughs> yes, but it's nice at the end, you know, the the fact is that the focus is still on we have to be businesswomen first, we have to make our money mm-hmm. first, we have to be sorted and settled before we're allowed to think about romance. And I thought that was lovely as well. Yes, very sensible. And I never, I can't remember how old he is. He's he's a bit older, isn't he? He's in his late twenties, I think. Yeah. Um, and he's there's a whole storyline about um, <laughs> or the indeed the opening scene is them having some sort of fairy i don't know like if you if you go over here and look through the woods you'll see the man who you'll eventually marry and he has yeah. to be there and all that sort of thing which felt yeah. you know a bit like the author the author of the enchanted castle hadn't quite let go of <laughs> the enchanted castle sort of yeah. novel but um it's forgivable because it's all just you know a bit silly and entertaining and, and she doesn't yeah, seem exactly. to put too, too much emphasis on it anyway she doesn't seem that bothered about it <laughs> she was, pop, no. it pops up every now and then but it's not not the big thread of the novel no, it's it's charming, lovely. Um, it's you know something that you'll read when you just need a comfort read. Both of them are really. I mean, they're not. I mean, I think probably High Wages is slightly deeper in terms of its messages and emotional impact than The Lark. But The Lark is just. You can tell that she's a children's author. It's got that kind of whimsy yeah, and yeah. and fairy tale element to it, and you know exactly what you're going to get, and you curl up and read it, and it's lovely. Yeah. I thought the title of High Wages is quite interesting, um, to take a, a sudden leap over there, uh, yeah. in that it comes from the, um, what's the, what's the expression, experience doth take extremely high wages, something like that. Yes. Which seems quite a maudlin um, saying for a, quite, a, quite a happy book to be named after. What, what do you make of that? Well, I think it's a reference to the fact that success for a woman comes at high price, at a high price, and... You know, men can have the high-flying job and a wife and a family and there are no sacrifices required, whereas a woman, it's one or the other. And it still very much is the case now. Um, and I think that's really what she's referring to. You can't have both, so you have to make a sacrifice somewhere. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's, yes, it is sad how little has changed. In the, mm. And you don't get businessmen asked how they manage their family life at the same time exactly. or whatever or yeah. asked to interview if you're married or asked to interview if you have children which i have been at every oh, gosh they still do that really yeah it's illegal to us isn't it, it is but yeah. they still do and mm-hmm. you know are you in a relationship are you planning on having children all these sorts of questions it's like this should be entirely irrelevant wow i, should, yeah. I feel like i was very naive not to realize that still happened gosh. yeah well, I can promise in the interviews that I have given people, I have not asked them that. So, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't expect you to. Yeah. <laughs> I was too busy trying not to say anything too stupid. I did once ask someone if, what they wanted to do for the internment rather than the in- in- internment. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that, was, that was a mistake. So, <laughs> um, anyway, so um, where would you put this in terms of your uh, Dorothy Whipple? favorite because you've read all of them haven't you i have i have um well i would actually probably say it's in my top three. Oh, okay mm. yeah. i found i mean i haven't reread it largely because it's in a box but yeah. <laughs> um it would be i remember absolutely loving it at the time and finding it i just think it's uniqueness in terms of the the female characterization i found 
I just I found Anne Still Defined really interesting and quite daring actually and I like it for that reason that Dorothy Ripple is doing something interesting and for all these people who still think that Dorothy Ripple is just you know some kind of chiclet thing <laughs> and her writing is all just froth and and there's no depth to it that, that High Wages is the book that should change their mind yeah okay hmm. yeah I think I, I basically have someone at a distance and they knew Mr. Knight on a on a higher plane than <laughs> than the others and I haven't read They Were Sisters or um, and I have read Greenbanks, but I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> so I'd put Hiatus Hi- towards the top of my next, <laughs> you know, my next tier of Dorothy Whiffle novels. Okay. Um, so, so it might well still be in my top three, but there is quite a gap between the top two and the, th- and the next one, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yes, Ines, but have you, I am assuming you haven't read any of her other extremely hard to find adult novels. <laughs> I don't think I have, no. I think unless I, you've read them on on e-reader, then you probably haven't. No, <laughs> I haven't. Yes, so sadly they are. Although you can get the complete Inesbit for you know two pounds or something, if you if you're happy to read things on e-readers. Um, oh yeah, of course. Well, yeah. I might do that. Yeah, yeah. So, so where, where did would you place this in terms of quality when compared with our others? Much better than the other ones I've read. Yes. Right. Um, so 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 what was it? The Incredible Honeymoon and something Daphne? In, no. I can't remember the other one I read, but they were, yeah, not bad at all, but much worse. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that, partly that might be because, you know, my distaste for reading things on e-readers, <laughs> you know, I might have enjoyed them more if I was reading them in books, but um, but I think I probably wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were extreme. I don't know, it's just the things about this that, it was, it was like this, but without any of the humour or the emotional depth where that came in it was just some, it was all the very lightest bits of this and the more fairy tale bits of this but more so without anything tethering it to the ground um okay which you know could could be completely right for whatever mood you're in um but i think she had because this was her last book she had honed what this sort of book i think it was getting better and better as she wrote them so it's a shame that she you know, died when she did it is yeah mm. bit. But yes, very pleased that I've not actually read the introduction to this edition, but I'm very pleased that Penelope Lively also loves it. Um, yeah, I mean, I was back. really surprised to see it because I was, I actually saw it when I went to the Tate and it was in their bookshop. And I immediately thought, oh my goodness, this is the book that Simon's been banging on about. Yes. <laughs> um, and then obviously I stupidly texted you excited and you were like, yeah, I've already got it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I had I had seen it on Twitter a few months ago. I think when they announced it, I was like, "Oh my goodness, <laughs> this is happening!" Sorry that I crushed your joy there. <laughs> Every time, I've never managed to surprise you, apart from that one time when we were in the charity shop and I got you that and I showed you that cat book that you like. That's true. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I should say this: the, I've got the other three in the series here. So there's "Lifting the Veil" by Ismat Chagatai. Sorry about that. That's what's not pronounced. Uh, Birds of America by Mary McCarthy and Meatless Days by Sarah Saliri are the other three that have been chosen in the series. Um, so did you just buy? Did you just buy them all? I didn't buy them. They were sent to me by Penguin. Oh, how kind! <laughs> so, thank you, Penguin. Um, so yes, Mary, the Mary McCarthy is the other one that Penelope Lively chose, and Camilla Shamsi, who's an author I don't know, has no. chosen the other two. Have you read them? Not yet, although I'm quite keen. I've read the blurbs, and I'm quite keen to read all of them. They all look quite good, and they are also all fairly short. Same. Yeah. Uh, Birds of America, I had heard of um, the Mary McCarthy, but 
I've never read anything by Mary McCarthy. Not even the groove. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Well, I'd be interested to see how it is, because I liked the Greek. You sound interested whilst yawning. So. Yeah, no, sorry. Just overcome with tiredness. <laughs> it's been a, it's, it's this heat. I just can't cope. But Meatless Days particularly, I want, it's a memoir of um, life in Pakistan, oh. um, but I particularly like the title, Being a Vegetarian, so <laughs> I want to read it for that reason. If <laughs> and they've all, been, they've all got these lovely cover designs. Um, yes, they are nice. Uh, by can I find the information? I always like to to cite who actually did the cover designs. If someone's gone to the effort of making them look nice, but Penguin don't seem to tell me on these copies who's done these things. Hmm, it's a shame. Bye. Oh, oh well. <laughs> if I find out, I will put it in the notes. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, Ma- Martha Rice. Sorry, what? Rich. Martha Rich. Martha Rich. Yeah, well done, Martha. Um, but yes, all books and uh, authors mentioned will be on stuckinabook.com as well as. Um, I'll put Martha Rich's there, name there again, why not? <laughs> <laughs> uh, great, so if, you, um, if you're choosing between these two, The Lark and High Wages, uh, which one are you going to go for? I'd, I'd go for High Wages. Would you? Uh, I was hoping that The Lark might have won you over. No, I, I loved it, but I, yeah. just, I think The High Wages, High Wages is slightly more daring. Yes, well... Um, it probably is, but I'm still going to go with The Lark, which is one of my favourite <laughs> favorite novels. Um, and I'm really pleased we got a chance to discuss it on the podcast. Yeah, nice. I'm glad it was reprinted. Twice, yeah. in fact. Twice, yes. He'll do it next. Watch this space. Not <laughs> Persephone, who I recommended it to. So, but, <laughs> <laughs> often when I recommend a book to Persephone, somebody else publishes it shortly afterwards. Well, so. there you are. Okay. Something's in the ether. Um, in the next episode, we will be comparing to... Uh, murder mysteries. I miss um, the Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle by Stuart Turton. Is it? Yes. Which um, listeners to the last episode will know, uh, or maybe two episodes ago, we know that Rachel spoke about so enthusiastically that I could not wait to get a copy. <laughs> I, I assume it's fair to call it a murder mystery. Yeah. I've not. Yes, I've not read it yet. Um, versus the murder of Roger Ackroyd by Agatha Christie, mm-hmm. which I recommended to Rachel a while ago, despite not having read. So now I can actually <laughs> read it. <laughs> so. I actually find out what I think of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to discussing these. Me too. <laughs> so yawn, yawn. I stayed up very late last night. I was watching a program, that, a series, and I, in the end it turned out that I couldn't wait until today to find out what happened at the end. So I <laughs> what, said, what was that? Um, I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> I found it on Netflix. It was like a true crime, a, a cold case crime thing. It was really good. It had like every famous English actor in it. And um, I just, I stayed up till two o'clock in the morning. I just couldn't stop watching. Oh my gosh. I was like, no, well, I, I need to know. Well, message me later if you find out what that is. I will. <laughs> um, and I was just going to blame the sunshine. It always makes me sleepy. Yeah, and there's like, that like as well. Yeah. And I've had to battle my way through because, uh, as I was explaining to Simon earlier, the marathon, the London Marathon, is today, and it's right outside my flat. So getting across the road to do anything has been quite tricky. Today, <laughs> I like I like that anyone listening to you that sentence will assume for the first half of it that you ran the London Marathon. <laughs> and then in fact, you just watched. I just wanted, I just wanted to cross the road. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, there's as good a place as any to end, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, and yeah, speak to you next time. See you next time. Bye. 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 
You can support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash books, where there are various rewards available, including books through the post, and you can listen to our first blooper reel. Many thanks to everyone who has. Special thanks to Randy and Elizabeth. You can visit my blog at stuckinabook.com and Rachel's at booksnob.wordpress.com. Thanks for listening. Bye.